The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of my good friend, excellent researcher, uh, missionary, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, uh, this is going to be a big learning experience for me today, as many of Peter's excellent presentations are. This one is called The Real Story of the Spanish Armada and its Relevance Today. I've never looked into this historically, so I'm uh, really looking forward to having a good uh, education on this today. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Thank you, Andrew. It was on the 19th of May that the Spanish Armada set sail to invade the British Isles. And this is an incredible part of history. And it is one of the most important naval engagements in the history of the world, and certainly of super importance to the British people. And it marks one of the greatest watersheds in uh, history, 1588. And it's amazing that more is known of it, and that more films are made of it, although it was referenced uh, somewhat, um, without going into much detail, in uh, Elizabeth the Golden Years film, and there was some uh, dramatic footage there, but the how, the why, uh, the what was not really explored, uh, but for some good images, even though um, uh, it wouldn't have explained everything that was at stake or what was actually done and how it was actually defeated. Uh, so that film doesn't exactly help too much, but it, it does give one a, a little bit of um, inspiring visual pictures of these great galleons and the vast amounts of forest that were chopped down to make this massive, unprecedented armada of 130 ships with 2,400 cannon and over 30,000 men. So this was considered the invincible armada. It was one of the greatest fleets ever seen. And 1588, this is shortly after the Battle of Lepanto, when the Spanish Navy, along with the Austrians, had successfully defeated the Turks in one of the greatest naval engagements to that date, the Battle of Lepanto in 1570. And that was the last and largest of the battles between ships that were under oars, and uh, uh, that, or galley ships, and the uh, Battle of Lepanto had been won. And so Spain was considered invincible. In 1580s, Spain was the world's superpower, uncontested. Uh, Nobody could compete with them. Spain controlled the Americas, 
the ships controlled the oceans, and in fact, uh, Spain's uh, power was so uh, unprecedentedly large, you could say that without a doubt, uh, they were the greatest world power at the time, and, and Britain was nowhere near to um, an equal to Spain at all. In fact, at about that time, uh, Spain's population was something over 20 million, and uh, England was something around 3 million. And uh, that gives you a bit of an idea on, on just, and that's not counting the population in their colonies and empire overseas, just just uh, uh, Spain on the European continent uh, was uh, so huge, it dwarfed at England. And so the Armada was planning to invade England. And there was a whole lot behind it, because there had been, of course, Bloody Mary had been the Catholic queen who tried to re- assert Catholicism in Britain, and she had married uh, the Spanish king, Philip II, uh, who was the son of uh, Charles V. Charles V was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the one who Martin Luther defied with his here I stand, I can do no other speech at, at uh, Worms in 1521. Well, uh, here, Bloody Mary, uh, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's daughter, was queen. She was half Spanish herself because her, her mother was Catherine of Aragon. So uh, she was half Spanish, and now she married a Spanish a king uh, who was heir to the Spanish throne and, in fact, became king of Spain uh, while married. But fortunately, in a five-year marriage uh, to King Philip, uh, there was no children. And if there had been, well, history might be very different uh, because uh, she was totally devoted to the Inquisition and to Catholicism. And... When Mary died without having any children, Britain was spared becoming a province of Spain because, you know, you've already got this half Catholic queen, a half Spanish queen who's Catholic, 100% Catholic, half Spanish. Now she married a Spanish husband. Well, that means the children would be three quarters Spanish and so on. And uh, Britain was about to become a, just a, a province of Spain. And then in comes Queen Elizabeth, the Protestant queen, Elizabeth uh, the first and uh, Britain's longest reigning monarch uh, until Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth exceeded her record up to that stage. But so Philip II of Spain, who's the widower, you could say, of Mary, Bloody Mary, uh, he calls the Catholic world to a crusade against Protestant England. And it was English gold and English support that bolstered the Protestant cause in Scotland and Netherlands. And with Philip having conquered Portugal, and having expanded Spain's Atlantic power, he ordered his admirals to assemble an armada, which would crush the Protestants in England once for all. Now, there was quite a lot at stake here, because to consolidate Spanish control of the Netherlands, which was a colony of Spain, he wanted to get rid of Britain, which was providing a lot of aid, and not just weapons, but even people, and of course, gold and so on. Much of the gold won by the pirates from the Spaniards in the Caribbean. Uh, bolstering the resistance of the Protestants in, in the Netherlands. And so it wasn't just England. It was to consolidate the control of the Netherlands and over Scotland that uh, Spain was acting. And so he was convinced we will crush the Protestant Reformation in England once for all, and with that, extinguish it on the continent too, starting with the Netherlands. So by May 1588, Philip had prepared a fleet of 130 ships, 2,400 cannon, over 30,000 men, the greatest naval force the world had ever seen, 
called the Invincible Armada. The plan was for this armada to sail up the English Channel and to pick up troops from the Spanish Netherlands under the Duke of Palmer and escort his invasion barges across the Channel to conquer England. And Queen Elizabeth ordered the entire nation to pray for God's intervention and protection against the invading Spanish Armada. Now, had the Spanish Armada succeeded, today's world would be unrecognizable. Spain was the Catholic superpower. England led the Protestant cause. All Europe feared Spain. Spain had overwhelmed all its adversaries, even the Turks. Had the Armada succeeded, the whole subsequent history of England and Scotland would have been dramatically changed. There would have been no Protestant North America, no Anglo-Saxon civilization. It would have made Spain the unrivaled world superpower in Spanish, the world's language, if the Armada had succeeded. An English army of almost 20,000 men were assembled at Tilbury to oppose the anticipated 30,000-man Spanish Armada, which in addition would have a further 15,000 Spanish troops under the brutal Duke of Parma, who were to be ferried across the Channel in barges from the Netherlands. It was at this time that Queen Elizabeth addressed the soldiers at Tilbury with these words, I am come amongst you, as you see, resolved in the midst and the heat of battle, to live or die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and for my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. And I think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than dishonor should grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, your judge, and the rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Very great historic speech of Queen Elizabeth I, dressed in armor on horseback at Tilbury. Well, the English Navy, the Royal Navy at that time was a, a shadow of uh, the Spanish. It was nowhere near uh, the size that it would assume later times. It was under the control of Sir John Hawkins since 1573. He had rebuilt and he had reorganized the Royal Navy, which had survived from the days of Henry VIII. The castles, which were towers above the galleon desks, had been cut down. The keels had been deepened. The designs concentrated on seaworthiness and speed, so there weren't these top-heavy galleons like what the Spanish had, with uh, towers on top from which the archers or musketeers or crossbowmen could fire. Most significantly of all, Hawkins had installed heavier long-range cannon. Now, he knew he could not outproduce the Spanish in terms of size and number of galleons, so Hawkins determined to batter the enemy from a distance with superior range of his cannon. Now, the Spanish Armada carried many cannon, 2,400, but these were really only suitable for close-range salvos before grappling and boarding the enemy vessels for hand-to-hand -hand combat. That was the standard way of, of fighting then. You would soften them up with some cannon as you approached, but the goal was to actually come alongside to grapple and then to board the enemy vessels and basically have your infantry on board swarm over and fight hand-to-hand -to, -hand to take the enemy vessel. Well, um, Hawkins knew he couldn't do that. So to oppose the Armada's 130 ships, Hawkins had 34 vessels, just 34, carrying 6,000 men total. His commanders were Lord Howard and Sir Francis Drake, um, the famous Sir Francis Drake who circumnavigated the globe and the one 
whose famous raid on the Spanish Armada at the port of Cadiz the year before, 1587, had delayed the sailing of the Armada by destroying a large quantity of their ships and their stores in the harbour, what was called the singeing of the King of Spain's beard. And so, very brave man, Sir Francis Drake. So, the Armada left Tagus on the 20th of May, and was afflicted by severe storms. Two of their thousand-ton ships lost their masts. They had to put into refit at Karuna. They couldn't sail again until the 12th of July. An intelligent report of 21st July from Howard to Walsingham reported sighting 120 sail vessels, including galleys, many ships of great burden. Beacons were lit across England to alert the population of the danger. And that reminds one of a, uh, a classic old film uh, dating back to the 1930s, Fire Over England, uh, Fires Over England. And uh, uh, that's, that's a classic black and white of um, uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, fight against the Spanish Armada. Well, so there were these beacons being lit from one side of England to the other to alert the population to danger. Church bells were rung, special services were held to pray for God's protection. And the English engaged the Armada in a four-hour battle, pounding away with their long-range guns, but staying out of range of the Armada's cannon. There was a further engagement on 23rd of July, and then off the Isle of Wight on 25th of July. And the guns of the English ships raked the decks of the galleons, killing many of the crew and sailors. But still, this is just really surface damage done to delay and slow down the attack and to show resistance, but uh, they couldn't really take on the Armada head on. On the 28th of July, the Spanish Armada anchored in the English fleet near Calais. And as the Royal Navy lay upwind from the Spanish, they determined to set adrift eight fire ships filled with explosives to drift into the crowded Spanish fleet, which was then at anchor. Well, as the Spanish fleet awoke to see these flaming ships drifting towards the anchored armada, they panicked. And the Spanish captains cut their cables and made for the open sea, and a lot of collisions followed. And the surviving ships of the armada headed eastwards to Gravelands, expecting to link up with Palmer's troops and barges that were ready to be escorted for the invasion of England. But the tides and the winds were against them, and they found no sign of Palmer's ships in Dunkirk Harbour. And part of that was the resistance forces in the Netherlands were doing their part to harry uh, Palmer's forces in, in the Spanish Netherlands. And so uh, the invasion force that were meant to take set force from Dunkirk Harbour were not ready. At this point, the Royal Navy caught up with the Spaniards and a long and desperate fight raged for eight hours. And Howard's men sank or damaged many of the Spanish ships and drove others onto the banks. And the English reported that at this point they had now completely exhausted the ammunition. Otherwise, scarcely a Spanish ship would have escaped. But they had now wiped out the entire reserves and all their ammunition. No more cannonballs and powder. And the remnants of the defeated armada now fled northwards. Instead of going back the shortest way to Spain... I think they were maybe fearing that the Royal Navy would hurry them all the way down channel, but the Royal Navy long, no longer actually had the uh, resources, the ammunition or anything left to, to hurry them. But the Spaniards made a disastrous decision to sail north of Scotland in order to reach Spain the long way by going around the British Isles, around the north of Scotland, around the coast of, of uh, Ireland, and then back down through the Atlantic back to Spain. 
Well, they faced mountainous seas, racing tides, westerly winds, drove two of the galleons to wreck upon the coast of Norway. Ships that had been shattered by the English cannonades were now struck by storms. Another 17 ships were wrecked on the coast of Scotland, and uh, then many, many of the once mighty armada were lost off the coast of Ireland, and uh, many of those battered survivors uh, were actually um, attacked and killed on the shores of Scotland and Ireland when they came ashore. And very few of this once mighty armada actually limped back into the Spanish ports by October. They'd set sail in May and they finally got back in October. Incredibly, the English had not lost a single ship and it was scarcely a hundred men of the Royal Navy had been lost in the ferocious engagements against the Spanish Armada, primarily because of their long-range cannon and uh, their tactic of remaining out of range of the Spanish cannon and firing from long range. And although they were limited in their supplies and their ships, the tactics of Hawkins and his admirals, Howard and Drake, had been crowned with success. And so Queen Elizabeth I ordered that a medal be struck to commemorate the victory, bearing the inscription, God blew and they were scattered. And on another side, one of the coins said, man proposes, but God disposes. And while churches throughout England were holding extraordinary prayer meetings, devastating storms wrecked the Spanish plans. And the Duke of Palmer's invasion barges from Holland were prevented from linking up with the Armada by the Dutch action. And the English tactics of setting fire ships amongst the huge Scottish, the huge Spanish galleons had created confusion. And the courageous action by the English seamen and continuing storms decimated and broke up the Spanish Armada. And you can just see so much providential uh, involvement because the wind and the waves and the storms, and you, know, you can't plan these sort of things. Uh, or the, even the decision of the Spanish to go north of the British Isles to get back to Spain. Most of what was left of Philip's fleet was devastated by more storms off the coast of Scotland and Ireland, and only a miserable remnant of the once proud armada slipped back into the ports of Spain months later. They had lost 51 Spanish ships and 20,000 men lost at sea. The greatest superpower of the time, Spain, had suffered a crippling blow. The defeat of Catholic Spain and its armada in 1588 marked a great watershed in history. Before 1588, Spain was the unquestioned superpower of the world, the greatest naval power. They ruled the seas, the oceans. In fact, when John Calvin had sent missionaries to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, they were all killed on arrival because Spain controlled the seas, Spain controlled the ships, Spain controlled the overseas colonies. Missions was completely unthinkable before Britain and the Netherlands became major naval powers until these Protestant countries did. So the defeat of the Spanish Armada was a great watershed. It signaled the decline of Catholic Spain and Portugal and the rise of Protestant England and Holland. And before the 1588, the world powers were Spain and Portugal. And these Roman Catholic empires dominated the seas and the overseas possessions of Europe. And only after the English defeated the Spanish Armada did the possibility even arise of Protestant missionaries crossing the seas. And as the Dutch and the British grew in military and naval strength, they were able to challenge the Catholic dominance of the seas and the oceans and the new continents. And foreign missions became a distinct possibility after the Armada, after 1588. 
Had the Spanish Armada not been defeated, the Protestant faith could have been extinguished in England and Holland. Then the whole future of North America would have been far different with Catholicism dominating instead of the Protestant pilgrims. So by the grace of God, the destruction of the Spanish Armada in 1588 saved the Protestant Reformation in England and the Netherlands from Spanish invasion, oppression, and the Inquisition. And the victory of Protestant England and Protestant Holland against Catholic Spain was absolutely essential to the founding of the United States of America and of the Republic of South Africa. And so I think it's an incredible part of history. And of course, this is also uh, the story of Queen Elizabeth I and of Sir Walter Riley and Sir Francis Drake and so many other great people like Admiral Howard. And, and what a lot of courage and what a lot of determined, courageous actions were taken to protect the British Isles from Catholic Spanish invasion, which carried the Inquisition in their uh, ships as well. Let's remember it would have brought the Inquisition and the persecutions of Bloody Mary back to England. So it was a true watershed in history. And one wonders why there hasn't been a major film production made on such a phenomenal battle as, as the Spanish Armada, explaining what was involved as well. But try to compare that with the invasion of literally millions of foreigners from both Asia and Africa, who have not only not been resisted, but have been aided and abetted by the welfare state. It's quite a contrast. There was a time that Britain protected its shores, but now it's being subverted from within. And when you consider the Spanish Armada, it's worthwhile to just notice uh, how many people have come to England in different invasions. And well, of course, one of the earliest invasions was by the Roman Empire. And uh, Julius Caesar came in 55 BC. And over the years, the Romans brought tens of thousands of people into England and uh, uh, the what was then called Britain. And uh, they actually built up quite a population that Roman England, Roman Britain, as they called it then, had a population of 3 million. And the urban population was about 240,000 with Londinium having an estimate 60,000 people. But after Britannia ceased to be a functional Roman province and the Romans evacuated, many of the urban areas collapsed and the overall population declined by as much as 2 million. So Britain went from a population of 3 million to, to less than a million uh, with the Roman withdrawal uh, from the British Isles. So uh, that, that was one. But then... Uh, there was another major uh, Anglo-Saxon invasion of England, and that's in the 5th and 6th century. Normally, Hengst and Horsa uh, coming into Kent in 449 uh, AD is considered to be the start of the Anglo-Saxon era coming into England and uh, what was then called the British Isles. But it became Angleland uh, after the Angles, where the Anglo comes from. Uh, Angleland... Uh, being just south of Denmark, uh, northern part of Germany, just adjacent to Denmark, would have been uh, called um, uh, the um, uh, the Angles. And the Saxons, of course, came from Saxony, which is today Germany. And, and the Jutes, well, they would have come from uh, Jutland, uh, so to speak, what today would be considered um, uh, Denmark. So the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, uh, they poured in in the 5th and 6th centuries in particular. And, and most of the people living in the British Isles today would be considered uh, to be descendants of theirs, and uh, DNA uh, tests have confirmed that. Well, the 
settlement period of the Angles, Saxons and the Jutes <coughs> produced the different kingdoms of Wessex, Wessex, West Saxons, Sussex, South Saxons, Essex, East Saxons, Mercia, Northumbria, and uh, the, the original inhabitants of the British Isles, uh, the Brutons, uh, the, the, the Celts, uh, they moved more into what became Wales. And of course, the Picts and the Scots uh, had been staying pretty much in the north. That's why Hadrian's Wall was built there. And of course, you, you had the Celts uh, over in, in, in Ireland. So the the original Britons or Brutons um, were pushed out by the Anglo-Saxons. And uh, that's why the Celts were predominant now only in Wales, Ireland and Scotland. And the Angles and the Saxons took over the rest of, uh, the rest of what then was called Angerland or England. The next big invasion time came from the Vikings. From 789, you had thousands of Vikings coming in and settling in many cases from the raid at Lindisfarne all the way through to the uh, invasion of the Normans. You had thousands of Vikings coming into England. And of course, they set up Dane law and many of the key uh, towns uh, of, of Britain uh, uh, in the north uh, were actually settled by the Vikings, which includes York and Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. And uh, you can uh, also note that uh, Dublin was uh, a, uh, an island was a Viking settlement. In fact, uh, DNA people have said that the red hair uh, predominant in the British Isles comes from the Vikings predominantly, which is interesting, uh, considering less than 0.6% of the world's population is redheaded. So it's less than 1%, 0.6% of the world's population would be redheaded. And apparently they all have uh, Viking sources originally. Now, the Norman conquest of 1066 is considered the last successful attempt in history by a foreign force to take control of the Kingdom of England. And, and that was one of the other big watershed events because the entire Saxon leadership of England, or almost all, was effectively displaced, and the Normans uh, came in and formed the new barons and leaders. But that was still less than 2% of the population of England would be Norman, less than 2%. Uh, something in the region of 10,000 Normans came into England in total as a result of the Battle of 1066 and the invasion under William the Conqueror. Later, in the... Uh, 16th century, you had a large number of Huguenots arrive, something in the region of 40 to 50,000 French Protestants, the Huguenots, came through and settled in the British Isles. And about 300 of those came all the way through to Cape Town and settled in South Africa. And today, they say that something in the region of 20% of the Afrikaans uh, bloodline in South Africa is Huguenot. That started with 300 Huguenots who came to us uh, over 300 years ago in um, 1688. And uh, so, you know, when you think of, of a small number of foreigners coming to a country, uh, bear in mind that uh, through multiplication, uh, through natural birth rate, uh, that a few hundred can become thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And over the years, it can go to the millions. And so uh, also interesting is in the 19th century, something uh, in the region of over 7,000 Indians moved into the United Kingdom. So uh, in 1939, 
the resident uh, population of um, Birmingham of Indians were, was 100. So 100 Indians living in Birmingham in 1939. By 1945, that grown to 1,000. Uh, in 1932, the Indian National Congress surveyed all Indians outside of India, and they record that there were 7,128 Indians living in the British Isles in the United Kingdom. So interesting that you had that number then, because today there's over a million Indians living in the British Isles. And uh, as far as Jewish population goes, it's interesting to note that uh, while there was only 10,000 Jews in all of the British Isles at the beginning of the 19th century. So in the year 1801, there were 10,000 Jews there. But uh, in the 1880s, Russian Jews uh, were being uh, expelled uh, because of the policy of the Tsars, and uh, something in the region of 2 million Jews had left Russia uh, by 1914, of which 120,000 settled permanently in Britain. So 120,000 Russian Jews settled in the British Isles through the 19th century, particularly after 1880. And uh, interestingly, uh, that there was uh, all kinds of restrictions brought in, the Aliens Act of 1905 and the 1914 Alien Restriction Act limited the amount of foreign-born people that could live in the British Isles. So uh, interesting how that was very significant uh, one of the largest inputs of Jews coming into England in history, um, first of all, happened under uh, William and Mary, uh, where, because they were a lot of the financial backers in the glorious revolution of 1688. But in 1815, after the Battle of Waterloo, Britain encouraged Jewish settlement, and 20 to 30,000 Jews moved to England in 1815, which is intriguing. Now, at the same time, it's worth noting that after the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, more than 22 million people from the British Isles emigrated, left Britain. So from 1815 to 1914, that's 100 years, 22.6 million people left the British Isles, 60% uh, of which moved to the United States, and the rest went to the British Empire, Canada, Australia, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, and, and so on. So... Uh, 22 million people left the British Isles in one century. And, uh, well, we've got huge populations in South Africa from 1820 settlers, which only a few thousand. It came from the British Isles in 1820. And uh, th those um, few thousand 1820 settlers have now grown to well over a million. Uh, so, you know, you need to think of the long-term impact of, of migration. And so uh, when you consider that... Uh, there were, in 1734, 6,000 Jews in England, and by 1800, there was about 15,000, and then by 1940, there were 400,000 Jews in England. And uh, when you consider that, according to your uh, census, in 1931 census, the... Um, uh, number of foreign-born population Britain had risen to 700,000. Uh, and uh, so in 1851, there were 100,000 foreign-born people in Britain, and by 1931, there were 700,000. So the percentage of foreign-born in Britain increased from half a percent in 1851 to 1.7% in 1931. That's before the Second World War. 
Today, officially, 14% of the British Isles is foreign-born. That means they were born elsewhere and then they moved there to the British Isles. That's not counting people of foreign-born parents who are born. So when you try to find out what has been going on uh, in, in the waves of, of immigration, uh, here's just some statistics that help you to understand Islam is now the second largest religion in the British Isles. Now, there were something in the region of 30,000 Muslims in all of the British Isles in 1960, the year I was born. Uh, today, Muslims in uh, Britain uh, is 3.3 million. 5.2% uh, of the total population of Britain, over 5%, is Muslim. That is 3.3 million Muslims in the British Isles. And that's up from 30,000 just 60 years ago. Uh, if you break that down, uh, most of those Muslims live in England, 2.6 million, over 5% of the population of England. 76,000 Muslims live in Scotland, 1.4%. 49,000 live in Wales. Most uh, Muslims in Britain live in London. And uh, I believe you have a Muslim mayor. So when it comes to people identify themselves as black, uh, Britain has, according to the 2011 census, 1.9 million residents who identify as, as black, African, Caribbean, um, uh, or African blacks. And so of these, they say that those who define the ethnicity in the uh, census as black African, 989,000. So just about a million. And another nearly 600,000 listed themselves as blacks from the Caribbean. Uh, and then when it comes to mixed marriages, uh, you're talking about something in the region of 2 million are of mixed race descent. So uh, according to your latest uh, details, the United Kingdom population is 65 million, 65 million people, of which only 38 million identify as Christian. 59% of the residents in the British Isle identify themselves as Christians. 5% identify themselves as Muslims. 1.3% identify themselves as Hindus. And uh, those of no religion, 25% of the British Isles. Uh, now, if you take by population by ethnic group, the last we've got is the 2011 uh, census, which could have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Whites, 87% of the British Isles, 56 million. Blacks, 3% of the population, 1.9 million. British Indian, a people from, from India, 2.3% or 1.5 million. People from Pakistan, 1.9% of the British population. That's 1.2 million people. Mixed race, 1.2 million people. And uh, uh, that gives you an idea. Uh, uh, and with other races, other ethnic groups, 3.7%, which comes up to 2.3 million, uh, whatever that means. So isn't it interesting that we all know about the, or we should know, about the Roman invasion, about the Saxon invasions in the fifth century, about the Norman, uh, the Viking invasions from the ninth uh, and tenth centuries, and of course the uh, Norman invasions from Battle of Hastings, 1066. But 1066, that only represented 10,000 Normans uh, that came in in uh, the next um, uh, something like 40, 50 years after the uh, Battle of Hastings. So 
they were only 2% the total population. And yet the Norman influence has been enormous. And uh, even when you think of the 40 to 50,000 Huguenot uh, refugees who came, who actually enriched the population. Some, let's be fair, some of the uh, uh, immigrants come and enrich one's population with uh, all kinds of skills and arts and crafts and, and faith and uh, uh, with work ethic and uh, many different ways that a, a population can be enriched in a real sense uh, by some immigrants, but one doesn't want to change the character of a country with it. Yet what we are seeing in the last 50 years is absolutely unprecedented, and particularly in the last 20 years. You see an entire character, demographic character, but more than that, the cultural and religious landscape transformed so that you're having mosques being built while churches are being closed and sold and demolished. And you are having Christians being infringed on, on their religious liberty, even while uh, officials fall over themselves to appease every Islamic whim and requirement, even blocking traffic uh, for some of their uh, so-called prayer events, which look more like a political demonstration, blocking traffic in the streets and so on. And to think of the extraordinary efforts that were done to prevent 30,000 Spaniards invading Britain in 1588, uh, and what a major event it was with 10,000 Normans in 1066, and yet millions of foreigners coming from countries which have not just uh, foreign religions and uh, pagan religions, but also traditions and cultures which include phenomenal amount of violence, uh, disrespect for women, uh, abuse of women and children, uh, honor murders, so-called, and all sorts of other things, uh, jihadist terrorism. And these sort of things are not enriching uh, the culture as much as debasing it. When you think of those who come in and produce litter and pollution and crime and violence and uh, graffiti and, and want to live off welfare, it's one thing when all a refugee was obtaining was an opportunity, freedom to start again and to work to, to support themselves, uh, such as the Huguenots uh, who came from France. Uh, these were Protestant refugees and they weren't a burden to anyone. They had a strong work ethic. And then you look at the New World Order's types of migrants who tend to be people who easily manipulated if you'll give them free things. And so political parties are appeasing these groups in order to bring about a revolution, a Marxist New World Order type revolution, by people who can be easily bought and manipulated because of their background, uh, not having the Protestant ethic of here I stand, I can do no other, my conscience kept the word of God, give me liberty or give me death, no taxation without representation. You think of all the influences that have made England what it is in the past, uh, the the people who made this stand in the word of God, who had a strong Protestant work ethic, who did not want to take charity from anyone, but wanted to to uh, not only uh, meet their own needs, but to earn more than what they needed so that they could be generous to others and, and hospitality industry. So you think of, of uh, those who built up Britain, and then you look at those who are coming in who seem to be more interested in burning it down and breaking it down and complaining about the culture and wanting to change everything, even disrespecting the standards of living, the common law, Magna Carta, the royalty, the constitutional monarchy, and, and so much more uh, that, that makes Britain or has made Britain uh, one of the greatest countries in the world in history. 
and now uh, we can see the threat. So I think at this time, as we particularly remember the Spanish Armada and the phenomenal efforts taken to protect the British arms from invasion, we should question the present policies and politicians who not only do nothing to stop present-day invasions, but in fact are falling over themselves to do everything they can to subsidize and aid and abet of what would have been called treason in the past. If you aiding and abetting, for example, jihadists who want to destroy everything, why would we take such a lot of effort to fight on foreign soils to protect other borders and yet not try and protect our own? And so I think the Spanish Armada's got a lot to teach us many levels. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Interestingly, the um, uh, I actually completed the 2021 census recently. It was quite interesting because um, I never got um, anything in the post because you had to do it all online. And then I found a card jammed in my door telling me to complete the census. And then I had someone knocking on uh, my door or rather buzzing me from downstairs and, oh, you need to complete your census. And the card they put on my door, it didn't, it said to, to do it and go to your reference number well I hadn't received the initial paper Um, and anyway cut long story short I did that so I don't know when the results are going to be published but that'll be worth looking at Um, but they've been running around saying you get a thousand pound fine if you don't do it and things like that and I think a lot of people would like uh, you know their privacy in such matters I think that's what I've been seeing in uh, the media some people flat out are saying they don't want to do it and then when you look at it some of the questions this time were uh, if you uh, identified as a different gender from the one you were born with you know, it was questions like that in it. It's it sort of, yeah, and, and it's like, oh, shocking. for some people, that's offensive. Now, you know, the, the government can tell us what they consider offensive, but you can't tell them what you consider offensive. Um, and it's interesting what you say about the, uh, essentially, you don't have to make war to invade a country anymore. The way that they've done it is the bad guys have got control and they're inviting in people that we defended ourselves against over the centuries, as Peter pointed out today, for example, the Spanish Armada. Um, but we had the Crusades also. For some reason, kings and noblemen, they take loads of soldiers and they go and fight to protect us from Islam. But today we're inviting these people in with open arms and again we're prioritizing them if they can be deemed minority then they actually go to the front of the line with uh, jobs with things like affirmative action uh, known um, in america it's known as positive discrimination in the uk although they tell us that we can't discriminate at all but they've found a way to do it positively um it, it goes to show that, that someone has decided or a group has decided to bring in people that essentially we've tried our very best uh, to keep out to go to all lengths to keep out historically but now they're welcome with open arms and the interesting group that you mentioned was the jews because i've heard other people on different radio shows pastor bob jones for example in america they say they're two percent the population he says i don't believe that for a minute i think they're at least ten percent and when you look at the representation that they themselves admit you know you have the likes of joel stein saying we 
uh, control the media, Hollywood, Wall Street and the government and all I care about is we continue to do so. And then you get another Jewish group that's able to come out and bring out the international definition of anti-Semitism and say that if you accuse them of controlling the media, Wall Street, Hollywood or the government, then you're anti-Semitic when they themselves admit it in their writings. And I want to jump over, we've got about 10 minutes left. There's a couple of things in the uh, Henry Ford's International Jew which I covered on a recent show with um, Blackbird 9 and Golden Pipe Wrench on our series on the uh, four-volume set, but I think it fits in here, and I'd be very interested to hear your comments. Now, firstly, we're going to do the article uh, that was originally published uh, on October 9th, 1920, called How Jews in the US Conceal Their Strength. And uh, I've, I've just got an extract here. And it starts off from the extracts given in the article, four matters became very clear. So here are the four matters that they think are very clear from the article so far. First, the Jew is opposed to any restrictive legislation against his entrance into a country. Second, the Jew is opposed to any racial classification of himself after he has entered a country. Third, the Jewish argument to the Gentile authorities is that the Jew represents religion and not race. Fourth, that at least one indication has appeared in which the Jew has one view to present to the Gentiles and another which he cherishes among his own people on this question of race. Another point may be made, sorry, another point might be made as this. When the authorities disregard as untenable the argument of religion, not race, the Jewish spokesmen fall back on the fact that their organisations don't want certain things and won't have certain things, argument or no argument, commission or no commission. The Jewish lobbyists have their way. There is no enumeration of Jews in the United States. There are 46 other classifications, but none for the Jew. The Northern Italians are distinguished in the records from the Southern Italians. The Moravians are distinguished from the Bohemians. The Scotch from the English. The Spanish-American from the Spanish-European. The West Indians from the Mexicans. But the Jew is not distinguished at all. None of the other races made objection. On this point, the report of the Commission reads, As far as ascertained by the Commission, the practice of classifying the foreign-born by race or people rather than by country of birth is acceptable to the people of the United States, with one exception. The officials who were endeavouring to have the census report show with scientific accuracy the actual racial components of the population of the United States were compelled to see their recommendation eliminated. What is the result? If you ask the government of the United States how many Frenchmen there are in the country, it can give you the figures. If you ask for the number of Poles, it is there. If you ask for the number of Africans, it is known. On down a long list, you may make your inquiries and you will find that the government knows. But ask the government of the United States how many Jews are in the country and it cannot tell. There are no records. If you want information upon that point, you have to go to the officials or representatives of the Jewish government in the United States. Of course, if Jew is a religious term like Baptist, Catholic, Christian, Scientist or Quaker, then there is merit in the argument that religious questions are not proper for the for the government to ask unless the religion comes into conflict with or is a menace to the ideals of the republic. But if Jew is a racial term or a national term, then the government is properly interested in making record of all the inhabitants of this land who bear it. And just one more bit before I um, hand back to you, Peter. There is um, an interesting... Here we are. This is the following week, uh, October the 16th, 1920, Jewish testimony on... Are Jews a nation? 
regardless of what may be said to Gentile authorities for the purpose of hindering or modifying their action, there can be no question as to what the Jew thinks of himself. He thinks of himself as belonging to a people, united to that people by ties of blood, which no amount of creedal change can weaken, heir of that people's past, agent of that people's political future. He belongs to a race, he belongs to a nation, he seeks a kingdom to come on this earth, a kingdom which shall be over all kingdoms, with Jerusalem the ruling city of the world. Gentiles know the truth that the Jew is not persecuted on account of his religion. All honest investigators know it. The attempt to shield the Jews under cover of their religion is, therefore, in the face of the facts and of their own statements, an unworthy one. Now, this example is just absolutely uh, amazing. Whenever these articles, i.e. the International Jew articles, have touched the International Jew financier, hundreds of Jews in the lower walks of life have protested. Touch a Rothschild, and the revolutionary Jew from the ghetto utters his protest, and accepts the remark as a personal affront to himself. Touch a regular old-line Jewish politician who is using a government office exclusively for the benefit of his fellow Jews as against the best interests of the nation, and the socialist and anti-government Jew comes out in his defence. And you can see back then, 1920, they were talking about being persecuted then for their faith and Judaism and all that. And when you think about what um, it's alluded to in that article about how they see themselves as a race, but they pretend to others that they're not, and why so they can't be racially classified? Well, if you want to go to Israel, it's my understanding that they say you have to be born of a Jewish mother. So they're very keen on race when it comes to them, but they're not keen on it when it comes to other people. So, Peter, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, there's lots of double standards around here. Interesting how in the British Isles and in America, um, their affirmative action and what they call positive discrimination is all for minorities. But come to Africa and you find there's no protection for minorities. They don't care about minorities here. Over here, affirmative action is for the majority, which is black. And minorities, such as the whites, the coloreds, the Indians, uh, the Malays, uh, in places like the Congo, the Pygmies, uh, or in places like uh, Rwanda, the uh, uh, Tutsi, uh, well, there can be genocide planned for them. And the, the abuse of, for example, the Bushmen in uh, Namibia or in Angola, where they were literally enslaved and hunted as, uh, for sport, uh, and uh, the abuse of the pygmies, in, which is a minority in the Congo, there was genocide in Rwanda to wipe out the Tutsi minority, who are only 15% of the population. In our country, we've got government laws, about 140 laws discriminating against minorities, such as whites and coloreds and Indians and Asians in South Africa, and discriminating on behalf of the majority. So there's no minority rights over here, it seems. Um, uh, they only interested in minority rights in countries where it is uh, of a Christian heritage or uh, European ancestry uh, as a majority. But you can be sure if the majority changes, the laws will not be to protect the minority. It will be uh, always somehow slanted against the Christians. Now, if you just think one of our strengths and weaknesses is as Christians, we try to be good neighbors and we want to be generous and charitable and hospitable. And so we've accepted refugees, immigrants, and so on. And, and you can imagine the shock when we were just, you know, we thought everyone else was, mind your own business, decent people like ourselves in Rhodesia. And next thing we find that our country's been betrayed into the hands of Marxist mass murderers 
of ZANU-PF, such as Robert Mugabe. And Mugabe gives credit to Jewish communists who converted him to communism and made him a communist and atheist and got him into the Communist Party when he was studying at university. And in South Africa as well, we found that uh, not only did our Jewish-owned newspapers work for revolution, but so did our Jewish-controlled uh, Anglo-American De Beers. Uh, Harry Oppenheimer, the CEO, boasted that they had worked for 38 years for this very purpose, to bring the ANC Marxists to power, to bring Mandela to power, and to oust the elected National Party government, which had ruled our country for 48 years before that. So uh, intriguing that we in South Africa and in Rhodesia, we found uh, to our shock and horror that the revolutions that seized our country and undermined us, and now is brought in and legalized everything from pornography, perversion, gender confusion, has been sponsored and promoted in large part by Jewish communists, a real synagogue of Satan, to use the words of Jesus from John chapter 8, uh, who have not only defiled the entertainment industry and turned the news media into a disinformation industry and propaganda, and many of the school textbooks and so on produced uh, by, these, by their companies very much defiling uh, distortions of history and guilt manipulation, Stockholm syndrome, uh, all kinds of gaslighting. It's, it's, it's horrific. And so there might be a small part of the population. You may say, well, you know, what difference can a few tens of thousands of people or a couple hundred thousand people in your population do? Well, if they control the banks and the media and the entertainment industry, and they are recruiting revolutionaries uh, who will work for the overthrow of your whole country, uh, and they're financing a lot of the troublemakers. You think of what the George Soros's and uh, so on do with the uh, Antifa's and BLM's of this world. Well, a small number of people can cause an enormous amount of problem, which is why in the past we would have our armies and navies mobilized to protect us from invading forces. It doesn't matter how small an invading force is, any of them can cause your problem. If you just think of your body, your body has, on a daily basis, got to fight against germs and viruses and all kinds of things that are coming in. And so there's all kinds of cells. You know, your, you've got your white cells and your red cells in your body. You've got the infantry. You've got the tanks, so to speak, who, who are continually seeking to protect the integrity of your body against foreign uh, bodies. And I know about this pretty well because of my wife's fight with cancer, my son having kidney transplant. We understand how this works. Our bodies are going through war every day to keep our body healthy. And a key part of that is to keep things that are foreign or unhealthy or could threaten our health um, to, to keep the body safe. And everything like a, a cut or a wound is a way for infection to come in. And what you drink, of course, uh, eat, that could also poison you. And so your body is at every single point checking everything coming in. And that's why a transplant is so dangerous because Everything in your body is designed, every single cell is designed to resist that, which is foreign, which doesn't belong there, which is not nutritious or positive, or which could threaten the health and life integrity. And so, as with our biological bodies, uh, so it should be with the society and the community and the congregations and the country, is to protect from that which doesn't belong or that which is dedicated to undermining and destroying our health, which is why I celebrate victories like the uh, victory against the Spanish Armada, and why I'm deeply concerned as to what we're allowing right now, which is threatening our faith and our freedoms, our families, and we need to 
stand up and we need to resist. Uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Wonderful presentation as always. Before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can get in touch with you? Yes, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, and our mission website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, SA, short for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org is the website, and you can find us on Facebook, uh, both Peter Hammond and Frontline Fellowship. Be good to hear from me. Thank you so very much, Andrew, for all that you do to keep us informed and networked. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a delight to be working with you every week. And uh, folks, on that basis, Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next Thursday. Uh, you have been listening to the real story of the Spanish Armada and its relevance today. I thank all of you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, bye.